0: Fellow law nerds, welcome to another episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewired.news podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that is wearing Christmas socks in April because we don't play by the rules. I'm Imani Gandy.
1: And I'm Jessica Piccolo. Rewired.news is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web, and the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. A big thanks to our subscribers, and welcome to our new listeners.
0: Yes, welcome to our new listeners. And hey Jess, I have a question for you. What's that, Amani? We love Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Oh my God, we love her so much. I mean, we we love Ruth Bader Ginsburg so much that we have started calling her the Notorious RBG, which for those of you who don't know, is a play on the Notorious B.I.G., a quite popular rapper from the 90s. And when it comes to cultural appropriation, Black people aren't particularly in love with it, but we love RBG so much that we all had a meeting and decided <laughs> we'll allow it.
1: <laughs> I mean, she's got this woman has her own memes. She's got coffee mugs, like she's swag galore. She really is. And and we love her so much
0: that I really feel like maybe we should start crowdsourcing organs and blood just in case she's an elderly woman mm-hmm. and my liver is shot, but I've got one good kidney and she is welcome to it. <laughs> that woman's saying.
1: tough. She's tough. I mean, you've done her work, Adamani.
0: Yeah, she she is tough. She can do real push-ups. I can't. She's 82. I'm 43. She wins. But we're not going to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg today. We're going to talk about Justice Sonia Sotomayor because America, y'all have been sleeping on Justice Sotomayor. And again, to hearken back to the Black community, when I say y'all are sleeping on Sotomayor, I don't mean you're literally sleeping on (laughs) top of her. I mean, you aren't aware of how amazing she is. Maybe she's flown under your radar for the past nine years. And we're going to spend this episode talking about how amazing Sonia Sotomayor is. This entire episode is going to be essentially a love letter to her. We're going to talk about her so much, you might even be like, gosh... Why are they talking about Sonia Sotomayor
1: so much? They're still talking about her. But really, she's fantastic. Like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg deserves all the love. The woman has built an amazing career. But like Imani said, there is another justice that deserves some of that attention, and we are going to give it to her. This episode, we're going to start off by talking about her confirmation hearing. Remember what a racist trash fire that was, Amani?
0: Oh my god. It was Awful. It mm-hmm. was really, truly awful. And like, it hurt my soul watching what the media and conservatives put her through.
1: Right. I mean, I thought I remembered it. And then as we were going back to prep for this episode, I really remembered it. And oh my God, it's bad. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to highlight some of her most important work that she's done so far while on the bench, knowing that she's got a lot more that she's going to accomplish. And then we're going to talk a little
0: bit about Justice Sotomayor's work in the community and what a role model she's become. We're going to talk about all of these things. So stay tuned after the break.
1: And tonight in Your America, now you've heard legal experts on the left and the right comment on Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Sonia Sotomayor. But what do the lawyers who have appeared in her courtroom think of her judicial temperament? well not much the almanac of the federal judiciary solicits commentary from practicing attorneys about our federal judges now here's what some of the lawyers who have argued before judge sotomayor had to say about her quote she is a terror on the bench she is overly aggressive not very judicial she behaves in an out-of-control manner she is nasty to lawyers
0: so what you just heard is Sean Hannity of Fox News playing into all of the racial stereotypes and dog whistles, so much so that I would even call it a dog vuvuzela? <laughs> Jessica, do you remember the vuvuzelas from the I World have Cup? a vuvuzela. <laughs> I do, we have one. (laughs) Maybe we ought to bust that out because honestly, the way in which Sean Hannity talks about Justice Sotomayor in that clip and the way in which he brings to bear all of these other primarily white dudes who call her a bully and a terror on the bench, it's really very disturbing that this is the way that media and conservatives decided to talk about the first female nominee, the first Hispanic female nominee for Supreme Court justice, don't you
1: think? I do. I mean, look, I expect this from Sean Hannity, right? He's the worst. And in terms of like playing really crappy racial politics, he's like the worst of the worst, even for Fox News. But what is amazing to me as we were going back and, and, and thinking and getting ready on the confirmation stuff is it wasn't just like a little drip here or a little drip there. It was like a fire hose of name, every type of racial stereotype, every phrase you can imagine, like, you know, this is, we've got an interchangeable crew of grumpy old white senators talking about Justice Sotomayor as a hot-blooded Latina and Ugh. what that means for the bench, right? It's so
0: tacky. Like, it's so incredibly tacky. I remember when she was going through this confirmation process and, you know, just preparing for this podcast, I had really forgotten how awful People treated her. I remember when people started talking about her involvement with La Raza, and it turned out that this basically advocacy group for Latina people was essentially the brown version of the KKK. And they talked about La Raza as if it was a legitimate terrorist organization.
1: Absolutely. And the entire tenor of her confirmation hearing, which Hannity completely set up with all of that garbage and the senators just went and ran with it, was that she was going to be racist against white guys.
0: Ah, uh, suffer the poor white guys. What will we do? They, you know, white guys just don't get a chance in this country. And I really feel maybe we ought to do an entire podcast about the ways in which white men just can't get a leg up in this country.
1: Especially in the legal profession. I mean, they've Ugh. really faced barrier after barrier after barrier in the law.
0: I mean, if you look at law firms, all the partners are women and women of color. All yeah. the white dudes are working in the mailroom. I mean, it's just unjust. It's unjust. Who
1: will stick up for the little white guy? Well, when Justice Sotomayor was before the Senate, it was folks like John Kyle and Lindsey Graham and now mm-hmm. Attorney Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. Uh. So yeah, they were terrible. They
0: really were terrible. And, you know, I I recall at the time when she was going through this, talking to some of my Latina friends, this was when I was living in Los Angeles, and talking to them about how frustrated they were about the characterizations of Sotomayor as sort of this, you know, spicy Latina, this hot tamale. And it's just, it, it, it draws on these racist tropes about Hispanic people, about the Latina culture. That's really disgusting and really deplorable. And Considering the time at which she underwent this confirmation hearing, it was 2009. Mm -hmm. It wasn't 1950. There was no Mm -hmm. reason for them to be talking about her this way.
1: Mm -hmm. And they really alighted all of those stereotypes and tried to dress it up with this idea that there was a question about her temperament. Um, And that this was that she was somehow not of a sufficiently rigorous legal mind for the job that she had been appointed for as though she didn't have over about 20 years of experience as a prosecutor and a judge before that.
0: Right, right. And you know, that, that's that's just sort of the way that women of color in corporate settings, and particularly mm-hmm. in the legal profession, are treated. Mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer, I worked at big law firms, and I can personally attest to the number of times that I was considered less than or not as smart as but on the f- flip side considered overly aggressive and too much of a bully simply because I'm a black woman. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, Sotomayor under she went through that same sort of thing. You know, she had all of these stereotypes that were attributed to her and she wasn't allowed to just be a person. She was supposed to be sort of a daguerreotype of what mm-hmm. a Latina judge mm-hmm. is supposed to be. And that's really frustrating.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know what is? I mean, look, Amani. I expect the kind of stuff we heard from Hannity from Hannity, and I expect Sessions right. and all of those guys to do that. I mean, that's what pinched white dudes do—is they, <laughs> they? White dudes. <laughs> but you know, it's really—you know—it's really upsetting. Is this is a history making nomination, and she got this crap from the left too.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't just like anyone on the left, right? It wasn't like, you know, Johnny Jackass with a YouTube channel who's really just (laughs) concerned about his subscriber list or his Patreon account. Mm -hmm. Not just like, you know, even some small-time journalist at some small-time paper who wrote an op-ed about how Sonia Sotomayor thought she was hot shit and she really isn't. Right. Do you know who... Was the uh, a main person on the left who was criticizing Sonia Sotomayor in the most racist and misogynist terms? Uh,
1: I'm girding my loins for this. Who Lawrence Tribe? No, Lawrence Professor Tribe. What are you doing, Pro- Professor
0: Tribe? What do you do? W Y D? That's more A <laughs> A V E for you. That's African American <laughs> Vernacular English for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. But honestly, what the hell are you talking about, Lawrence Tribe? So look, here's what Professor Tribe said, and it's bad. And I'm going to read the quote, and I might even read it again just so (laughs) it'll sink in as to how bad it was. So this is what he said. Bluntly put... She's not as smart as she seems to think she is, and her reputation for being something of a bully could well make her liberal impulses backfire and simply add to the firepower of the Roberts, Alito, Scalia, Thomas wing of the court.
1: What? Yeah. What? I mean, okay. first of
0: all, starting, she's not as smart as she thinks she is. How many times? I can't even tell you how many times as a woman of color, I've had that sort of sentiment lobbed my way simply because I'm a smart black woman and there are a lot of people who don't expect women of color to be intelligent.
1: Wait, wait. L- why don't we explain wh- Lauren, who's Lauren's tribe? Maybe not okay, everybody okay. knows who Lauren's tribe okay. is, just to like give some context to this really horrible thing he said. Really, really crappy. Yeah, you're right. That's a good idea. So Lawrence Tribe is
0: basically, he's like a constitutional giant in terms of scholarship, in terms of academia. He's a professor at Harvard. Mm-hmm. He, If you've been following him on Twitter as of, you know, two years ago, or when was it Trump elected? Has it been two years already? Or just Time one is year? a flat circle. I don't oh, even time know. Time is a flat circle. But he's very vocally anti-Trump. And mm-hmm. he usually has Pretty decent opinions and ideas about constitutional issues, yeah, but in he's this broadly case,
1: speaking, a good dude. He,
0: yeah, he's a he's a decent dude generally speaking. But in this case, it was like the white dude ness overcame him like a monster, you know, with these claws, and he just ended up spouting just this <laughs> typical white nonsense about women of color that she's smart, that she thinks she's smarter than she is, and that she's a bully and she has bad judicial temperament.
1: What the fuck are you talking about, Larry? Especially when he's serving at the time as an advisor to President Obama on his judicial nominees, like Boom. what, Larry? I mean,
0: no, no. And the thing is, is at the time that Sonia Sotomayor was on the top of Obama's list, it had been already long overdue, long past mm-hmm. due for a Latino or Latina justice to be elevated to the Supreme Court. So the idea that Lawrence Tribe, who was actually mentoring President Obama and talking to him about his nominees, is talking about one of Obama's top picks in these disgusting terms. It just, it, it, Larry, yeah. W.I.D., Seriously. Fortunately, he did walk those comments back. Mm -hmm. So that's good. But the fact that he made them in the first place really says a lot about how white this profession is.
1: And I mean, the two big ones and, you know, not to hammer the point like so much, but it's something that's going to show up again and again and again and again in the conversation around Justice Sotomayor is that she's not as smart as she thinks she is. And she's a bully. Like those are huge whistles those are really really
0: big whistles and those are whistles that are generally reserved for women and particularly for women of color right women will mm-hmm. get women will get oh they th- she thinks she's so smart and no oh, blah 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 and then women of color also get that added aggression that added. bully. Yeah. And, you know, that's the inter- My intersections have intersections. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, you know, I'm living mm-hmm. at this intersection of black and woman and it always ends up being aggressive, uppity, not as smart as she thinks she is, overly emotional, temperamental. And this is all yep. the shit that Sotomayor was thrown.
1: Right. And so, you know, we started out with that terrible Hannity clip, and now we've got this like terrible Lawrence Tribe quote, and in between is Justice Sonia Sotomayor kicking ass and making history.
0: Yep. And the thing about the way in which she was treated in the confirmation hearings is that it basically set the tone for the way in which conservatives would view Sotomayor as a justice and the way in which they would they would discuss her work on the court. And coming up after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about her time so far on the court.
1: OK, so after surviving that racist trash fire of a confirmation process, Justice Sonia Sotomayor was confirmed and all of the white dude's fears immediately came to fruition. She enslaved them all, she started her <laughs> reign of terror on the court, instituted martial law, all of it. I'm pretty sure she
0: has like, uh, like a well of white men just in her backyard where she Wait. just keeps them.
1: Does she need help working on that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. There's, There's a no jo- well that we know of.
0: Look, I I have this running joke with some friends of mine that I have a well of white ladies in my backyard where I keep them so they can be nice and safe and and comforted from the world. And every so often I throw down a bottle of scotch or like a new Netflix DVD. And it's very comfortable. I treat treat my, my well of white ladies very, very well. And I imagine Justice Sotomayor has a similar well of white dudes. And I'm sure she treats them very, very well. She probably throws down copies of the Wall Street Journal every morning.
1: You know, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure the National Re- uh, Review had something on that. So, um, <laughs> you know, really, uh, everything that they said was going to happen—that she would be reverse racist mm-hmm. and that they would lose all of their power and status in society—has clearly happened, huh? Uh, yeah, except for it hasn't. But what no. has happened
0: is that Sonia Sotomayor has become an absolute boss when it comes to matters of racial justice. In particular, when it comes to the over-policing of communities of color and the Fourth Amendment. Now, the Fourth Amendment, as you well may know, is the amendment that basically says cops can't search you, they can't seize you without probable cause. You You're basically should be free from unreasonable search and seizure. Well, we all know that that doesn't really apply to communities of color. And Sonia Sotomayor also knows that because why? She's a woman of
1: color, and why?
0: She grew up poor in the Bronx. She gets it. Get out,
1: yeah. Get out. So, what you're saying is her experience here has helped influence her uh, judicial temperament and opinions. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying,
0: and and it's to be expected. I mean, you've got a, a bunch of white dudes, some of whom who grew up wealthy, some of whom who didn't grow up wealthy, but. Here you have this woman of color, this Latina woman who grew up in the Bronx with her amazing, gorgeous Bronx accent. I love listening to her talk. And she grew up impoverished. Her mom was a mm-hmm. was a nurse in a methadone clinic, which I just learned like this week, yes. which is amazing. And she really was, you know, a sort of pull yourself up by a bootstraps kind of person. And that's exactly the same sort of rhetoric that white people tend to lob at black people. So she really understands the sort of black plight in this country. And we need a justice like that on the court, especially at this moment in time.
1: And it's really, I think, Im- important to say that, you know, look, I mean, Amani, we exist in the law and, and we can sort of forget that it is um, over-intellectualized because that's like the space that we're in, right? right? And particularly when you're talking about at the Supreme Court level, this is like the highest court in the country. Everything is at its most intellectual, rarefied, and in the clouds. And what Justice Sonia Sotomayor does and what we're going to really dive into in some more detail Is bring that experience into the law in a way that shapes the jurisprudence, the outcomes itself, and not in like activist judging as conservatives love to roll around. But the idea that um, bringing your day to day experience in, in, in interacting with the law is what makes it real.
0: Right. It's what makes it real. It's what makes the law living and breathing. You know, people who are not originalists, meaning people who are not stuck in 1770-whatever at a time when white dudes were wearing wigs and tights and black people were three-fifths of a person. You know, there are justices on the court like Mm -hmm. Thomas and Alito who believe we should be stuck in that time. Sotomayor Mm -hmm. understands that there's shit that goes on now that the framers could not have contemplated. And so she is one, if not the only person on the court who seems to understand the ways in which the Constitution is affecting Black
1: people's lives in this country. So why don't we give folks a real solid example of that? Why don't we talk about a case or something so that we can like really unpack that and they can see what this sort of like living judicial philosophy looks like?
0: All right, let's do that. Let's talk about a case called Utah v. Strife. Utah v. Strife is, I would have to say that her dissent in this case is probably her breakout opinion when it comes to sort of establishing herself as the, I guess I'll call her the social justice warrior justice, <laughs> <laughs> even though that's kind of a mouthful, but that's essentially what she is. So let's talk a little bit about what Utah v. Strife was. I don't yeah, want to get, happened, I don't what wanna get too case. much into the weeds, but essentially there was a guy- and the guy went into a house where the cops thought there were some drug dealers. The guy came mm-hmm. out of the house where the cops thought there were some drug dealers, and the cops mm-hmm. stopped the
1: guy. Wait, wait, hold on. I'm going to stop you here for a second. Is this guy a person of color? Oh my god! How did you guess?
0: How in I'm the just, world did you ever guess?
1: I'm spitballing here. I don't know. Right. So this black. I mean, dude, I thought maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you had an you had an inkling. So this black guy comes out of this 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 alleged drug dealer's house and is stopped. The stop is illegal. The prosecution in the case admits that the stop is illegal.
1: Whoa. Okay. So I'm I'm pausing again there because maybe our listeners don't understand the prosecutors never admit anything is illegal. Never. <laughs> this is a big deal. The idea that a prosecutor would say, oh, yeah, what the cops did was a bad stop. No, yeah. sorry. That just doesn't happen.
0: It really doesn't. But in this case, it did. The prosecution, like they admitted that the stop was illegal but they went on to say that the information that the cop found out after illegally stopping this 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 poor black man should be admissible and yeah. i'm gonna i'm just gonna give you a guess as to what what do you think the cop found out after he took this black guy's id went back to his cruiser checked the guy's id to see if he had any priors or whatever
1: what he had some quote-unquote priors what do you think that prior was Hmm, so let's see. We've got a black guy in a traffic stop with a cop getting a history run. I'm going with traffic priors. It
0: was a traffic prior. And actually, just to to step back a little bit, it wasn't a traffic stop. This guy got stopped on the street. It was a street stop. It wasn't even a traffic stop. Oh, damn. So the guy got stopped on the street. Cop went and looked at his license and found out that he had an unpaid parking ticket and arrested him based on that.
1: Arrest on an unpaid parking ticket.
0: An unpaid parking ticket. And the court seemed to think that this sort of behavior, this sort of over-policing of communities of color, was an isolated incident. But Sotomayor saw it differently. She actually chastised the court for its racial myopia. And the reason why she did that is because she understands from her personal experience that being stopped by the police is a serious matter. Mm-hmm. It's not just some inconvenience. It actually affects the dignity of a person. It's very mm-hmm. undignified to be stopped illegally by the police and basically yoked up for no reason.
1: Mm-hmm. And again, the majority on the Supreme Court had said, this is cool. We are okay with this.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and again, I want to point out included in that majority is Clarence Thomas, who for being a, the black guy on the court almost never seems to have black people's back. And that's why it's so important that Sotomayor is there, because she has black people's back. Right. She seems mm-hmm. to be like if you think of police misconduct as like this huge ginormous beast that is barreling Mm -hmm. down the hallway Sotomayor is basically on the other side of those doors just with her back to the doors and just trying to hold them shut basically by herself and that's really one of the things that makes her so amazing
1: and she's a former prosecutor. So, I mean, the idea that she's the one, you know, telling the state to slow its role and back off is also, I think, an important detail. It really is. And, and
0: maybe the most important detail about her dissent in Utah v. Strife is. Yeah, f- let's talk about this. this okay, is a good so one. let's get into it. Yeah, we really should because it, it's super important. So, the dissent, Sonia Sotomayor's dissent came in four parts. The first three parts were the general, you know, this, the Supreme Court got it wrong, the majority got it wrong, the Fourth Amendment mm-hmm. should actually prohibit this stuff, yada, yada, yada. It was the fourth part that really just put some stank on it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was in the fourth part that she started off by writing, quote, writing only for myself and drawing on my professional experiences. I would add that unlawful stops have severe consequences much greater than the inconvenience suggested by the name. So the Supreme Court majority was just basically saying that, "Uh, it's just a stop, it's not that big of a deal. Justice Mm -hmm. Sotomayor was like, whoa, 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 that is absolutely not the case. And she proceeded to talk about police stops and police brutality and over-policing of communities of color in such a way that I think it's really going to be one of those sections of a dissent that is going to stand the tests of time, that's going to probably be part of her legacy in the end.
1: Absolutely. And she drew on so many different sources, too. It wasn't as though, I mean, she opens with, from my own experience, and then she immediately puts it into this huge cultural conversation that was happening, right? Right. I mean, at the time, you know, we had just come off of the
0: Ferguson uprising, where black people took to the streets to protest the killing of Mike Brown. We were also fresh off the heels of the Baltimore, Baltimore, Baltimore uprising, where Black people again took to the streets to protest the killing of Freddie Gray. And at the time, the Department of Justice had opened up an investigation into the policing tactics of Ferguson, Missouri, and had discovered that the same exact behavior that was at issue in Utah v. Strife, essentially using outstanding parking tickets as a reason to arrest Black people, was going on in a large scale in Ferguson, Missouri. I mean, they were using unpaid parking tickets, and failure to appear at court dates as a reason to impose fines on Black people, which in turn were not paid because plenty of these people are low income and they don't have hundreds of dollars to pay court fees and so that in turn led to more outstanding tickets and more outstanding warrants and it was just this feedback loop of black mm-hmm. people being pulled over and then being issued being issued parking tickets and them going unpaid because of syst- systemic racism and poverty which led to them being arrested and it's just round and round and round
1: we go right and as she's drawing that out in her dissent she's She's pulling from all sorts of really great black thinkers and, and advocates and activists um, to do so, right? So she's citing Michelle Alexander and Ta exactly. Nehisi Coates. And, and this is an important thing because, yes, it's a dissent. And a dissent doesn't have the force of law, but a dissent is still a organized uh, organized around a key judicial idea. And what Justice Sonia Sotomayor does in this section in particular is to build a record with citation to other sources than white folks talking about white law, basically. Right. 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 And so this is a big deal because other attorneys, other judges can look back on this. This is how the law actually changes. This is mm-hmm. how the perspective and the context of the law actually changes is by, you know, drawing from the not usual sources. And this was this is a really big deal. It's such a big deal. I mean, the, uh,
0: Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, talks a lot about, you know, the, the, the mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex. Ta-Nehisi Coates' landmark article on reparations that was published in The Atlantic a few years ago goes, you know, point by point about how it is that Black people have ended up in a situation where they are being over-policed, where they are being segregated into neighborhoods, where white flight has taken a toll on these neighborhoods. And the fact that those sources are now enshrined in the in Supreme Court Mm -hmm. jurisprudence is extremely important because it means it's more likely that judges and lawyers, the predominantly white judges and lawyers may be reading those sources. And the fact that there might be some white lawyer somewhere who picks up Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and reads it and maybe learns something about the way black people are treated in this country is a really positive thing to come out of all of this.
1: It is. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I was so disappointed that Justice Ginsburg didn't sign on to that portion of the dissent because she didn't.
0: Yeah, she really didn't. I mean, she signed on to the first three parts. And then that last part, she was like, I'm out. And Sotomayor mm-hmm. was just like, well, I'm still in. And she proceeded <laughs> to just fucking knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love RBG. We talked at the beginning of the show about how much we love RBG. and I, And I do. But, you know, she's an 82-year-old white lady, right? And there's only mm-hmm. so much we can expect from 82-year-old <laughs> white ladies when it comes to racial justice. And as far as 82-year-old white ladies go, Ginsburg mm-hmm. is right up there. I mean, she's always she's always on the right side when it comes to abortion rights, which, you know, mm-hmm. obviously affects people of color very, very strongly. She's been on the right side when it comes to affirmative action, But she also tends to go a little bit sideways sometimes because she's a little bit elderly and she may not be as sort of hip to the times. For example, the NFL protests, Colin Kaepernick protesting Uh police brutality by kneeling. She at one point said
1: that she thought that protest was dumb. Yeah. I had to write a piece and say no, Ruth.
0: Yeah, you did. <laughs> you're like, you're like love you know, love you, Ruth. Miss you every day, but no. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, you know. But it's so, it's, so it's disappointing that she wasn't sign on. But again, I also think that there's something to the power of this section of the dissent standing on its own and in mm-hmm. uh, in Justice Sotomayor's voice, um, so that you know, um, there's also not a hey, me also, like you know, jumping in. Like maybe it'd be bandwagony. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's it's uh, the point is, is that she staked out some really important legal turf. And um, the effect of that dissent, while it didn't change the law immediately, we are going to see it play out. Right. Because it's going to
0: be more and more difficult to ignore the overwhelming evidence that black people are under siege in this country by state violence. And Sonia Sotomayor's dissent is the first step in a march towards fixing that problem, hopefully.
1: Yeah, so she's real good on that, and and we're going to talk about some of the other areas that she's real good on when we get back from the break.
0: Because she's just real good.
1: So we talked about how much
0: of a boss Sonia Sotomayor has been on the Fourth Amendment, but she's also been real good in other areas, reproductive rights and LGBTQ mm-hmm. issues. I mean, this is just another area where she downright
1: gets it. She really does. And so we're going to talk about a couple cases that really illustrate this. So I'm going to dig into the Wayback Files, Amani. Do you remember Hobby Lobby? Oh, my God. Do I remember Hobby Lobby? I have to say, Jessica, that I think that our
0: friendship was forged in the <laughs> fires of Hobby Lobby. I really do. I feel like this partnership that we have now began six, seven years ago with Hobby Lobby.
1: It really did. It's probably the like only good thing that came out of that <laughs> right, case. exactly. <laughs> but so way rude. back in the day, Amani and I would just get on and yell at each other and and a couple other folks who'd join us <laughs> and would listen about how ridiculous this case was. And so if you don't remember, this is a case that involved that craft chain, right? Like go get knitting needles and glitter. And they had an objection to the birth control benefit in the Affordable Care Act. So this is a Wait,
0: wait, wait. So I just want to admit, just just since it's been a while, like several yeah. years now. Maybe we should just go back and explain what the birth control benefit is.
1: Oh, right. Okay. So the Affordable Care Act, right? Healthcare reform, ObamaCare. Oh. <laughs> Obamacare had this provision that said, you know, all preventative health services need to be covered at no additional cost or copay. And that includes birth control because it turns out that preventing pregnancy is preventative medicine. No shit. Get the fuck out. I can't
0: even believe it. I, I I am shocked, I say. Perfectly shocked.
1: So... Hobby Lobby and several other businesses got all upset about the idea that they would have to provide contraception coverage as part of their employer package of benefits.
0: Uh, I I just remember how frustrated you and I used to get talking about this because it's just patently ludicrous. The idea that you can be a corporation and you can be offering your employees health insurance, but then you can pick and choose what portions of health care you want to cover and that you don't want mm-hmm. to cover is, it's ludicrous, right?
1: Birth but it's control even more is ludicrous than that. It's even more ludicrous than that, because it's not like they were just offering real reasons for what they did. They claimed that they, as a corporation, had a religious objection to this stuff. So they are a corporate entity saying, we have religious beliefs and rights. And so that's where the whole religious refusal legal fight really sort of went on steroids, right? So that's Hobby Lobby. Now, this case, I mean, you know, in, in Strife, we were telling you about Justice Sotomayor's thinking and uh, how that played out in her opinion. And what is amazing in Hobby Lobby was her performance during oral arguments. I mean, you think she's a boss in her writing? Oh my gosh, in oral arguments, this woman is fire. I can
0: can feel that coming off the transcripts. I have not had the been mm -hmm. blessed like you are to see her in action. I can imagine she's amazing.
1: She really is. And I mean, Hobby Lobby is like such a perfect example of this. Okay, so... Um, this is a case where everybody was pretty engaged. And Paul Clement is the attorney for Hobby Lobby. And this guy is a Supreme Court like regular. This is what he does is he goes in and argues all the big cases for conservatives. Um, and it, this is like his bread and butter. You, I mean, it's Citizens United, Shelby County versus Holder. Like you name a terrible case for liberals and Paul Clement is on the other side of it. Um, <laughs> Hobby Lobby is no different. And so the, the arguments open up and right away the the female justices asked 28 of the first 32 questions.
0: What? 28? 28? 28. <laughs> Jesus. 28. <laughs> and
1: of those 28, Justice Sonia Sotomayor had 11 of them just herself.
0: Oh wow. She so what had kind of Clement stuff was she asking? In the ringer.
1: Yeah, she had him in the ringer. So she started off by asking hard but really straightforward questions, which is what basically she does. So, Mm -hmm. for example, she asked if corporations, if they can object on religious grounds to providing contraception coverage, could they also object to, say, vaccinations or blood transfusions? That's what I love
0: about Sonia Sotomayor. She cuts right to the goddamn chase, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as lawyers, we talk a lot about slippery slopes, right? So if you have a particular law or a policy, you have to go down the slippery slope to see what the logical conclusion of that policy would be. And sometimes it's something so horrible that you realize that the original policy is ridiculous. So in this case, they're saying that corporations can decide not to provide birth control to their employees because it, it violates their religious freedom. So does that mean if, I don't know, Jenny McCarthy, for example, who is a notable, a noted anti-vaxxer, if she opened a company and Mm -hmm. she offered health insurance to her employees, does that mean that she could say,
1: oh, I'm not going to cover vaccines for your kids? Yeah, I mean, that was Justice Sotomayor's exact point and what she was trying to point out in the arguments. And as we saw in Hobby Lobby, that went sideways. turns out that, yeah, Jenny McCarthy probably can do that after the decision. You know, um, and but that was just one example. She held Clement's feet to the fire on a couple other occasions, too. Like, for example, she asked him, well, how the hell will courts ever know whether a corporation holds a religious belief to begin with? Like when right. and how are corporations going to launch these? And what if it's just the beliefs of the leadership and not the entire company? Right. What I happens mean, to non-religious minorities in a company?
0: Exactly. I mean, as we all know, co- corporations tend to be made up of shareholders. Right. And you cannot tell me that. Maybe Hobby Lobby because it's a very closely, you know, it was a quote unquote closely held corporation, which basically means it was a family run establishment. Mm-hmm. So sure, maybe everyone in that particular family believes that abortion, uh, that abortion is sin, and contraception is abortion, which it's not. But that's another conversation. But. You can't tell me that a bigger company, for example, like Starbucks, which is in the news for being racist as fuck, you can't tell me, <laughs> well, let's, let's imagine that Starbucks had a religious, religious uh, opposition to serving black people.
1: Mm-hmm. You can't
0: tell me that every shareholder in Starbucks would also have that religious opposition. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's an absolute ludicrous proposition. But that's essentially what the court has allowed Hobby Lobby and other corporations to do when it comes to women's health care.
1: Right. And so in that case, during oral arguments, her job was to just poke as many holes in Clement's argument. And she did it. She was having none of it.
0: Another case where she was having none of it is one of the bigger cases and maybe our last really good abortion case, given where we are with the Trump administration. And oh, oh. I know it's it's, it's sad. Probably but, true. But, you know, at least we got a really, really, really good one. And during the yeah. Obama administration, whole woman, whole woman's health versus Hellerstedt.
1: Yeah, and this is another one where on the bench, Justice Sotomayor was just on fire. And again, another case, I mean, you know, the repro cases, the justices are in it. They are very engaged. And this one, Roberts tried to have some control over our oral arguments, and it just like immediately Fell apart. And in particular, he kept trying to hem in the female justices. And Sotomayor was just not having any of it. She blew right past him. She was not at all concerned that he was worried about the decorum. They were having a real actual argument about these ridiculous Texas uh, anti abortion restrictions. And she was not going to let the men on the bench control the terms of that debate. And that's what's really
0: great about her presence on the bench, right? Is that she's not concerned about the fragile white feelings of white dudes. Mm -mm. Like that's just not, that's not who she is. And the thing that's so interesting about it is that that because she has not centered white dudes in her jurisprudence, it's that which makes her seem like a bully and seem to be judicially intemperamental, right? Because exactly, m- most of the judges and the lawyers are white men, so they tend to center white men concerns. And Sonia's like, not on my watch. Not today, bitch. <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? And exactly. Exactly. So, and so it's like, it's really frustrating to, on the one hand, Read about Sonia Sotomayor, read her work, read biographies of her, watch her, you know, her her appearances and her speak, and to see that she's just this warm, compassionate, like, you know, would probably invite you over for cookies and, like, tea and and tell you stories about... whatever, you know what I mean? She just seems Mm -hmm. like the kind of person you want to hang out with and learn from. And these white men are treating her like she's some hell beast, some bully from God knows where who's here to just destroy all white men. All men must die. I mean, they think she's like the Cersei Lannister of the Supreme Court (laughs) in, in these dudes' estimation. And she's really not. All she's doing is standing up for the rights of vulnerable and marginalized people. And those are the kinds of people that, frankly...
1: Alito, Roberts, Thomas, they don't give a shit about. Yeah, I mean, she's just doing her job. And so in Whole women's Health, right, this is the case that involved um, some of the uh, restrictions that the Texas legislature passed, like admitting hospital privileges and the requirements that clinics have to meet the same architectural standards as uh, standalone surgical centers. Those were passed, the lawmaker said, to promote women's health or patient health. Um, and in reality, they were just trying to close clinics. And that's what the whole legal fight was about, was, you know, was this to promote patient health and how do you prove that and whatnot. And in oral arguments, Justice Sotomayor did this really amazing thing. And I'm going to talk, I'm going to walk through it just a little bit. And it doesn't really sound amazing, but trust me, it is. Okay. So during oral arguments, she had Stephanie Toady, who is the attorney from the Center for Reproductive Rights and representing the clinics who are challenging the restrictions, walk the court through in very simple terms, in plain fucking English, different abortion procedures. What's the difference between a medication abortion and a D&E abortion? What stage in pregnancy do they happen? Who um, are people having these procedures? Where are they performed? What are the safety protocols and and incidents of, of events surrounding them? All of this in zero stigma, zero shame, just talking about a medical procedure as a medical procedure, and then connecting the dots to whether or not it is safe or unsafe. And it really immediately just laid waste to the state of arguments, nonsense argument that abortions are super unsafe and therefore need this extra special regulation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like what, what's really important about what Sonia Sotomayor did that day is that she, as you said, Talked about abortion in real plain. Matter of fact terms, you know, she gave Stephanie Toady the space to talk about abortion as healthcare, as opposed mm-hmm. to this horrible thing that sometimes women of a certain nature have to go and get done. And it's all very hush hush. And we shouldn't talk about it because stigma and shame and blah, blah, right. blah. It's absurd. and And, you know, she sort of demystified this idea that abortion is something that everyone should be ashamed of and opened up the court so that they could hear about what this procedure, these procedures, these these... these varying kinds of procedures actually are.
1: And it's really important when you have justices like Kennedy on the bench, for example, who will write an abortion opinion and use basically anti-choice talking points about mm-hmm. so-called abortion regret syndrome and, and things like that. And, and she had none of that. And what the effect of that was, was like you said, to give Tody the space to educate the court. And then we see that play out in the opinion that Justice Breyer would write. Because Justice Breyer writing for the majority struck the regulations and gave us this beautiful, nerdy, wonky, dash. Down- a so opinion. nerdy <laughs> it is. It's like so nerdy, fan but, yourself with info <laughs>
0: exactly. But like it's so nerdy because Sotomayor gave the attorneys the space to explain exactly. all of this stuff to explain how it is that Texas really wasn't concerned about health and safety, but was trying to restrict abortion access because abortion is super safe, and they had all the data and the statistics. Yep. And Breyer loves data and statistics. And it turns out, you know, Sotomayor may be emerging as data nerd number two. I mean, if you look at, for example, Shelby County v. Holder, that's the case that gutted the, the Voting Rights Act. A bunch mm-hmm. of Southern states were like, hey, we want to gut the Voting Rights Act and say, you know, black people can't vote. And Sotomayor was like, hmm, opened up her little notebook, took a look at their records and they were like, y'all are still a bunch of fucking racists. So No.
1: Right? And she did something very similar, too, in Masterpiece Cake Shop this term, which we've covered extensively so far on the podcast. Go back and listen to those episodes. They're real good. Cakes, not speech. But she gave this master class in breaking down the Alliance Defending Freedom's argument that baking a cake is some kind of special art form. I mean, she said the primary purpose of cake is to be eaten. Right. Cutting through the bullshit. (laughs) Like Once again. There and, it is. and just recently
0: in the Nifla v. Becerra case, which we also did an episode on, you should go and listen to that. That's the case involving these lying, lying clinics that like to lure vulnerable women and basically terrify them. Sonia Sotomayor was the only person to zero in on the fact that these clinics were targeting vulnerable patients. They were targeting people of color. They were targeting low-income people by making them or encouraging them, luring them into these fake clinics and no other justice really squared that circle. You don't square Mm -mm. a circle. I guess you square a square and you (laughs) circle a circle. But you know what I mean? Like she was the one that brought all of that together and to make the point that, you know, the law is not just something that white dudes talk about. The law affects real people. And in this day and age, the way the laws are being made and adjudicated, they are affecting most People of color, low-income people, lesbian people, gay people, bisexual people, trans people, all of these people who are part of marginalized identities who are being screwed right now. And the Mm -hmm. only bulwark is the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, the sole bulwark in terms of communities of color is Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And she deserves... All of the accolades and so much more respect than we give her. Not that people disrespect her, but like I said at the beginning, y'all sleeping on Sonia Sotomayor.
1: Right. And so every single one of these cases that Amani and I have talked about, whether it's been a lot of talking or just a little bit of talking, what Justice Sotomayor is doing is standing there and bringing the people affected by the law into the center of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not allowing the law, the courts, especially the appellate and the Supreme Court to exist in that 10,000 foot view anymore. She is absolutely making sure that the people who are impacted by these decisions and who come in contact on the daily with this stuff are the ones that the court is at least considering and she's making sure that that happens. And after the break, we're going to talk about the way in which she makes sure that happens in
0: the community. So she's not just important to lawyers and judges and the people who are affected by her opinions, but to people who might not even be affected by her opinions right now, like
1: children. Okay, so we just gave you a pretty good snapshot of how amazing a judicial mind and presence Sonia Sotomayor is on the bench. She is is equally impressive in the community. This is absolutely a woman who is out there living her truth. Jess, you're absolutely right. She is living her truth. One of my favorite things about
0: her is the fact that she's appeared on Sesame Street a couple of times. Hi, I'm Sonia Sotomayor. And I'm Abby Cadabby. And we're here to tell you all about the word career. Yeah, career. The reason I love those clips is not only because it's Sonia Sotomayor reaching out to children, right? And showing children Mm -hmm. that it's okay to be different, that it's okay to aspire to be more, to be a a lawyer, a doctor, what have you. I mean, I
1: find that to be really special about her. It's so charming, and I mean, again, representation matters here, right? So we had all of this buildup about Justice Sonia Mayor being aggressive, being a bully, being mean, being like out to destroy everything, and here she is on Sesame Street. I mean, imagine right. Justice Alito showing up on Sesame Street? Oh, for
0: God's sake! It would be so awkward. It would They'd be so. They might cry. Awkward. <laughs> all, all the Muppets would be crying. They
1: I might. Mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just—it's not the same. It's not, it's the, not same. the same
0: at all. And just the, you know, I I just want to relay a little anecdote to show the sort of compassionate person that she is. So at the end of every Supreme Court term, the Supreme Court clerks throw on basically like a little sh- a little variety show for the justices. It's sort of like a roast, but it's all in good fun. And it's generally been the law clerks performing the show for the justices. Well, at the end of Sonia Sotomayor's first term, at the end of the performances, she had clearly organized with her own law clerks to do a little performance of her own. So she brings out this little radio and starts playing salsa music and starts salsa dancing. And this, I love that. And this sort of sends a shock through the room because no one had ever done this before. This was always a very sort of state event that was the clerks performing for the justices. So she gets up. And she starts dancing with her clerks. And then she starts motioning to the other justices to come and dance with her. <laughs> and so she gets Anthony Kennedy up there. And apparently he doesn't really know how to salsa. who So he does like a little jitterbug move, which is adorable. Oh, that's
1: hysterical. Right?
0: And so then he go- uh, she-, she goes over to Justice Scalia and actually gets Justice Scalia to dance with her for a little bit. And at the end of that little dance, Justice Scalia quipped, Oh, I knew she was going to be trouble, which is hilarious because, you know, yeah, she is trouble. Trouble for white supremacy. (laughs) (laughs) Trouble for white fragility. Hell yeah. Right? (laughs) And so then, you know, she got she got Roberts to dance, who was apparently very embarrassed. And then eventually she made her way He's over. He's a
1: conservative to, guy, like just in um, his demeanor. I bet he blushed like purple.
0: I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. <laughs> and so finally she makes her way over to Ginsburg. And Ginsburg was at the celebration, but her husband Martin had just died, oh. like I think earlier that week. So she clearly was, you know, grieving and mourning her husband. And so, so Sotomayor goes over to her and, you know, Becky her to come dance. And Ginsburg says, you know, she doesn't want to dance. So Sotomayor leans over and whispers into her ear, your late husband would have wanted you to dance. And so Ginsburg Aww. gets up <laughs> and the two of them start salsa dancing together just for oh a little God. bit, you know. And then Ginsburg turns to Sotomayor, takes her hand in her fa- takes her face in her hands and says, thank you. Oh, God. I mean, come on. (laughs) Like, I'm tearing up just relaying the story. Like, seriously, I'm glad I'm not on
1: video at the moment.
0: (laughs) Right? Because it's like this this woman is compassionate. She's caring. She's concerned about the most vulnerable people in this country Mm -hmm. in a way that not a lot of people are. Ginsburg is to an extent, but when it comes to Black people specifically and Black Lives Matter specifically, Sotomayor is, she is my jam, right? She is just like, she is heaven sent when it comes to that. And I think it's going to be, her legacy is going to be something that is going to really reshape the courts. It's going to reshape society. It's going to reshape racial relations. I truly believe that. And I think it's a blessing that she's on the court.
1: And, you know, there's no way that that is an act that she does, right? There's no way that that was like putting something on for her colleagues at the start of a new job or anything. Not I was lucky enough to see her speak at the University of Colorado here in Boulder, and she was an absolute delight. I can I mean, imagine. she had this huge, this huge auditorium, right? CU's a big campus, big university, and it was full of undergraduates, folks from the community, law students, like all of us, you know, journalists like myself were there. And she was there. Talking about her experiences as, as a justice on the Supreme Court, as a Latina woman in the in the legal community, and talking about the interplay between um, civic engagement and uh, personal identity, and mm-hmm. is just doing this in this very it's and that's a that's deep and that's heavy and that's not necessarily like an easy thing to just sort of like walk in and out of. Um, right. And here she is like sharing personal stories and then transitioning into really difficult areas of the law, you know, like getting into strife, for example, and then decides, you know, she's just going to get up and start walking around Oh my she God! To see who she's talking to. <laughs> and like that maybe doesn't sound like a big deal, but this is a woman with Secret Service uh, detail, right? Like right. she's a justice on the Supreme Court, so Secret Service is with her. And They're probably like losing all losing their minds. <laughs> oh, they start freaking out and then she makes fun of them for freaking out about it in real time. Like this is the, she's like, no, I'm going to, I want to see the people I'm talking to. I I want right. to look you in the face. Right. I want to like, you know, engage with the people. And there's like these hulking shadows in the background that are like <laughs> scrambling and trying to like, no, don't go down that aisle. Like, right. you know, all of this stuff. And she just doesn't give a shit because, right. you know, she's there for the people. And that's right. what she wanted to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. She really is there for the she's a justice for the people. Like I said earlier, she's a social justice warrior, justice for the people. We need she to make really a, we need to stitch that on a pillow and send it to her.
1: Oh my god. Let's do that. I'm not crafty. I am like the vortex of anti-craft. I can't do any of this. But, I'm sure
0: someone someone we could find someone someone to do
1: that. knows how to do that and could make that happen. Absolutely. So, so that's just a little snapshot of what an amazing person and and legal scholar and just influencer in the community Justice Sotomayor is. And we hope that as you've listened to this episode, you have come to love her as much as we do, because we really love the hell out of that woman. We really do.
0: And I really think that she needs to get a lot more attention than she has been, especially now that we are in this sort of law and order phase of the Trump presidency where, you know, Black folks are being yoked up at Starbucks for no reason. And just yesterday, a 26-year-old father was shot down in a hail of bullet fire at a Walmart parking lot for no fucking reason. And the, you know, the situation with Black Lives Matter, with Black death at the hands of the state is a real problem. And if there's one person who gets it and who's going to help fix it at the jurisprudential level, it's Sonia Sotomayor.
1: And we've seen that from the beginning, from the way she handled herself during that ridiculous confirmation hearing process to the way she's carried herself on the bench and in her opinions and dissents and just the way she is in the world. So Justice Sotomayor... Thank you for being you. We appreciate you.
0: We do appreciate you. And if you want to come on our podcast, we would love to have you. (laughs) Oh, my God. We would love it so hard. Could you imagine?
1: I don't know that I would be able to maintain. I would have to work hard on maintaining myself before we actually started recording. But thank you all for listening and for joining us on this little tribute to our favorite justice on the court, Justice Sotomayor. Um, Please hop over to the Facebook group, Boom Lawyered, and continue the conversation there. We're always happy to hear from you. And you should be sure to
0: track us down on Twitter. I'm at AngryBlackLady. Jessica is at Hegemony, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. Ask us questions. Use the hashtag TeamLegal. And we check that quite frequently. And we try to interact with the people who are
1: using it. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the tubes. Boom Lawyer is created and hosted by Imani Gandhi and Jessica Mason-Piclo. The show is produced by Nora Hurley. Our executive producer is Mark Folletti and Rewire's editor-in-chief is Jody Jacobson.